as we come now to the Word of God. You can turn in your Bibles, if you'd like to read with me, to 2 Samuel in chapter 14. That's 2 Samuel 14. And as you find that, would you please pray with me? Our Lord, we know that your word tells us that the unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. We need that. We need your light and we need your help. So Lord, would you guide us by your spirit? Would you bring light to our eyes so that we can see what's true of you and find hope and come to believe? You're a good God, and we trust your help, and we ask it, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to cover the bulk of chapter 14, but I'll read just the, the very beginning of this, and I want actually to back us up into chap- the end of chapter 13. So I'll start here in 2 Samuel chapter 13, beginning in verse 37. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Now, Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Don't anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. This is God's word. Now I'll stop there. We'll read the rest as we go in summary, but where are we here. Just a reminder for us, we're now several weeks into looking at the life of Absalom and God's interaction with this. Remember that these are real people in real history with real problems. And we know, if we read the Bible long enough, that the Bible prevents us from elevating any particular person in the Bible to a position of a a bulletproof hero, this shining example of morality. The king, in the section that we've just read, is King David. This is the same guy who, in the scripture, is called a man after God's own heart. This is the same guy who famously conquered Goliath with all those little stones that we sing about. 
And this is the same guy who's now the powerful king of Israel, the anointed one of God. And in this season of his life, we now see this king day after day brought low in mourning for his son. In some ways, for King David, this is just the beginning of his mourning. Because when we get to the end of this narrative about Absalom in just a few weeks, we will hear from David what is, without exaggeration, what I think is the saddest words in the entire Old Testament as he weeps and weeps. Daily, even now, he's mourning for his son. And here the author uh, is vague about what exactly he's mourning for. I think the author's intentional about that. It just says David mourns for his son. It doesn't tell us which son he's mourning for. So you'll remember his son Amnon, we saw last week, has been killed, murdered by Absalom. And now Absalom, another son, is now on the run. He's a fugitive. So is David mourning for Amnon, for Absalom, for both? I think the way the author words it is perhaps intentionally getting after the idea that David is mourning over this entire situation. You remember Absalom, David's son, murdered his half-brother Amnon out of revenge for raping his sister Tamar, and now Absalom has fled to uh, Talmai, who is his grandpa on his mother's side. <laughs> Did you get all that? You almost need a family tree. If you didn't, it's okay. What we really need to know is that the house of David, the king, is messy. It's really messy. In fact, I was chatting with some of you uh, briefly about how to summarize all of what's happening here in Absalom's life, and, and one person just simply said, what a family. And that's, <laughs> that's true. It'd be funny if it weren't so sad. All this, as we read it, leaves us with a deep longing for restoration. When I read these chapters of the scripture, I just am left with a heavy sigh that I don't feel like I have words for. And we have to wonder as we read these things, where is the Lord in all of this? Have you been there? At any rate, here we are in the midst of this situation, and one day into King David's court uh, comes the account of another messy family. He's told by this uh, wise woman uh, that she's come in asking for the king to save her, the scripture says. And this woman, we know a little bit of the background, is sent by Joab, who's the high-level military commander of Israel. And uh, we're going to see more from him in a, in a few weeks. Um, but he sends in this wise woman, and she's to tell him a story. It's not a true story. It's completely made up. Uh, but this is their clever attempt to try to get the king to see things, 
to try to get the king to do a certain thing. So this wise woman comes into to David's court, and she tells him about her own family. This is now the section of verses that we were coming up on, and I'll just summarize it. Here's what she says. She says, I'm a widow. My husband is dead, and we only had two sons. And one day, while my two sons were out in the field, they got into a fight, and one of them hit and killed the other. And so now my clan, my neighbors, and the people that are in my surrounding area are calling for justice. Which, by the way, is different from revenge. Remember, this is not taking it into our own hands. It's the community calling for something to be done. And this wise woman says, if this son who killed his brother, my son, is condemned to die, I will be left alone. I'll have no heir for my possessions. We'll have no name for our family, and I will have no one to provide for me. She says very eloquently in one verse, she says, if he is condemned, it will quench my coal that is left, as if there's just one spark left in the ashes. And so she comes before David, begging for mercy. Please, she says, restore my son. And David grants mercy. He does what she asks. Uh, David says, she shall live. His words are, as the Lord lives, not one hair will fall from, from, to the ground from your son. And then, as soon as he pronounces this judgment, the woman turns David's decision back on him as if she's holding up a mirror for him to see his own situation about his own son Absalom who has been banished. And this is what she says in verse, let's pick it up in verse 13 of chapter 14. And the woman said to David, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We're like water spilled on the ground, which can't be gathered up again, but God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. So she's trying to get David to bring his son, Absalom, the one who'd killed his brother and who's now on the run. And as soon as David hears her say this, he sees what's happening. He says, has Joab, my military commander, put you up to this? And, and she admits it. She says, yes, Joab and I got together, and Joab wanted to do this, she says, to change the course of things. He's trying to put you, David, on a different trajectory because the trajectory that you are on now is that your house will be left in complete shambles. You know your son is dead and the other one has fled. He is banished. He is an outcast. So please, King David, why will you not bring your son Absalom home and change the course of things? And David does. He changes his course at least to a degree. You'll see how this section ends. I'll pick up reading in verse 21. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, I grant this. 
Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab says, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. And so Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. David's son Absalom is restored. Kind of. Is he? Because what we see here is just a partial restoration. Now, why was the restoration of David's son Absalom only partial? The author doesn't tell us what we are told at the very beginning of this chapter in verse 1 is that David's heart went out to Absalom. He felt for him. I mean, it's still his son after all. No matter what happens, that will still be the case. But something unnamed still holds David back from bringing full restoration. Was it guilt? Was it a sense of family pressure? Or maybe it was the sense of how it will look to the kingdom if he brings him home? Was it out of a sense of injustice, or was it just baggage from his own personal wounds as a dad? Whatever it was that caused this only partial restoration, we can see that there's still a strain in their relationship. When he says, bring, them home, bring him home in verse 21, he says, bring back the young man, Absalom, not bring back my son, Absalom. And when he's brought back into the city of Jerusalem, he says, Absalom needs to dwell in his own house, and he is to be kept out of the presence of me, the king. And to add to all of this, there's no indication that Absalom, the son, has any sense of remorse or repentance for what he has done in taking revenge and killing his brother. So this is different than the parable of the prodigal son, you know, the son that goes off and eventually comes home to the father. In that situation, the son, the scripture says in Luke, came to his senses. He realized what was happening, and he goes telling the father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. But Absalom says neither of those things. If there were full restoration here between David and Absalom, the father would say, Come, my son, come into my arms, live with me again in my house. I want to be near you. And the son would say, forgive me, my father, for I have sinned. And then there could be healing and peace and celebration. But instead, there's just a partial restoration. And partial restoration is almost worse than no restoration at all. Now, at this point, please don't hear what I'm not saying. 
in these things as they're unfolding. And this account here is not necessarily a template or a model for us to either follow or avoid. It's not calling us personally, individually, to go out and fully restore all of our strained relationships. Just a reminder, kindly, this story is not about you. It's not about me either. I'm not a character in the life of Absalom. We know that full restoration, according to the Bible, is not always wise or good. It requires some discernment with the Lord's help. But, but, as we read what happens here, it does give us pause and make us wonder how many of us live in a state of partial restoration. That in the strain of our relationships to each other, we may experience a perpetual coexistence where you maybe share a space, but actually you dwell apart. Situations in which we're home, but not home. Situations in which we come closer, but not close. And if you've experienced that, you know that that is not life. It is a miserable and a sad position to be in. To add to that even, if this is our relationship with each other, we have misery and sadness in that, and it adds even another layer if it's in relation to God. Because how chilling would it be to experience just partial relationship with the Lord and partial restoration? to think that God might call us just young man or young woman and not his child. That God would say, come live in my city, but not in my house. And if in situations in which we neither acknowledge our own sin nor ask for his forgiveness, we instead just keep to ourselves, mind our own business, and call it good. Is that what you want? Or some see the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to cleanse all, all who believe from sin as just a partial restoration. To see his experience on the cross as just basically a giant reset button. That he wipes out all our sin and just we can start over and so now I'm left just trying to live better and rebuild it on my own. I'm not restored then, that's just a do-over. Is that what you need? Partial restoration, when it falls short of full restoration, can be so dangerous. Because in those situations, we can convince ourselves that things are better when they may not be. In David's situation, Joab, the military commander, recognized that David needed a real change of course, that his trajectory is headed straight for the, for the rocks. 
And while that's good to recognize that, we need to be careful not to reset the course into another dangerous direction. That we avoid Scylla and, and get sucked into Charybdis, or we, we jump out of the frying pan and into the fire. And so we don't want to just avoid the bad situations here. We want to pursue what's good. So how do we point our compass toward true north and set the course here? Maybe you noticed that when the wise woman comes in to ask for restoration, she does not just point out the bad. She points to what is true. She draws David back to God. What is God like? How does God act? What is God's character? What is God's nature? What is God's ways? You'll notice it's the center of this whole section. It's verse 14. If you've got your own Bible and you like to scribble, this is the one to scribble on. Circle it real big. In fact, I think it's your jogger verse for the month. Print this somewhere so that we remember it. Verse 14, I'll read it again. She says, We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now, there's a lot in that tiny little breath of a sentence. And when she says God does not take away life, we know that's not true in every sense. There is a sense in which God does take away life. We've actually seen it just a few chapters ago. God took the child of Bathsheba, and the child died. God took the life of her husband, Uriah, and in the end of this account, he will take the life of Absalom. So as it is, we all die. She's saying something true there, and she compares us to water, like the water that's accidentally spilled and just disappears into the ground. And she says, you can't gather that back up once it's spilled. We can't recollect it. But she says, God finds a way to recover it. It's not that he doesn't take away life in every sense, but he does, in a sense, when life is taken away, not leave the person banished not leave the person an outcast. The Lord makes a way for life to be restored, not only partially, but fully. We can see that even from the very beginning of history in the very first banishment from the garden. I know many of you know this account, but uh, Adam and Eve sinned. They, they disobeyed the Lord. They coveted the fruit. They bit the fruit. Uh, and as a result, they are now destined to die, just like all of us. And they're banished from the good garden of Eden. And it was right and just for God to do this. But look how the rest of it plays out. This is Genesis chapter 3, Verse 23, therefore, the Lord God sent him, Adam, out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, 
And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that, every, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Keep reading. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. In other words, the Lord rightly cast them out of the Garden of Eden. They were cast out because of sin, but they are not abandoned by God. The Lord prepared, devised means that they would not just be like spilled water, but that these banished ones would not remain an outcast. She has gotten a man. She has had a son. And we know eventually this, that son has another son who has another son who has another son who goes all the way down until we meet Jesus, the son of Joseph, the son of Mary, the son of God, the son of Adam. And through Jesus, God reconciles, redeems, restores his people to himself. We can see it talked about, Paul talks about this in the book of Colossians. In chapter 1, he writes this. We are, uh, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He says here that we share the inheritance of God. We're not just called young man, young woman. We're called sons of God, daughters of God, ones who are saints in light. And now we're no longer, we're, we're, we're no longer in the domain of darkness. We're no longer exiles and outcasts. We're no longer fleeing fugitives who are left in hiding. We are no longer banished out of the Garden of Eden, but we are now part of the kingdom of his beloved son with all of our sin forgiven. And it's more even than just forgiving sin so that we'll hit the reset button and you can start over. It's more than that. The work of Jesus on the cross for all who believe was not just potentially cleansing us from sin. It actually cleansed us from sin. The work of Jesus on the cross was not just partially restoring us to God. It was fully restoring us to God. We heard this earlier in our assurance section out of Ephesians. I'll read it again, and this will take us through here to the end. This is from Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 12, Paul says this, Remember that you were at that time separated, banished, outcast, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, 
you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. You were once far off. You were once aliens, strangers, without hope. But through the blood of Jesus, we have been brought near to God. You are now near him, if you are a believer. Not nearer. Near. Not a little closer. Near him. Not into Jerusalem, but dwelling in your own house near him. Not into his kingdom, yet kept out of his courts. You are near him. Not brought back, but kept out of his presence. You are near to the Holy One of God. You have been brought near to God in Jesus. So Christian... We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And he devises means so that his banished one will not remain an outcast. God's power and mercy are great. And his, re- his restoration is not partial, but is full in Jesus for all who come to him. Would you pray with me? Hmm. Lord, would you help us to believe these things? to know them not only in our brains, but to let them sink way down into our guts, into our deepest self. Help us to desire and to love your restoration, to want to be with you. And help us in this to trust the work of Jesus, who has brought us to dwell in your presence now and forever. You're a good God, and we give you all thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.